If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor, and it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection, and I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We have a great show for you today. Today I am talking with Micah Murray. And if you've not heard of Micah, he is a writer, he is a blogger, he is a former ministry person in evangelical America. And we have the most candid, honest conversation. I can't wait for you to be a part of it. He shares about his journey of growing up really conservative and how he landed unknowingly, unexpectedly in this liberal camp. And he shares about what he was taught to see as his enemies and how that eventually changed and how he now views those groups of people. He talks about his overall really lonely journey of stepping outside of the box, stepping outside of the ways of thinking that he'd always had and how scary that was and how he eventually moved out of that space and ended in a place where he felt he didn't have community. But one of my favorite things, and it's a common thread throughout our conversation, is you can hear his deep love for Jesus. You can hear this rich um, thread of hope that he's breathing into anyone else who feels afraid to step outside the lines. He has such an authentic space inside of his heart and inside of his mind for the Jesus story and for God and the divine and all the things that we love to talk about here. So I can't wait for you to meet him. And one of my favorite things about this podcast is that I get to connect with you guys and I get to hear about your journeys and the places you come from and the things you bring to the conversation. And it is an honor to get to hold those stories. And I feel like, I think that's why I love this episode so much, is that we're inviting a new voice into this space here. And I believe in an open table. I do. I think we live and grow best when we are surrounded by bridges, not walls, and where we listen instead of trying to convince or talk over or what have you. I love the open space we have here. Now, I will tell you, you may not agree with everything that Micah shares and everything he has and holds as his beliefs now, but that's okay. That's okay. Open tables are where we learn and where we grow. And I am honored to pull up a chair and invite my new friend Micah to our table here. So, If you do not mind some occasional swearing, because I will give you a disclaimer, there are some words in this episode, not one for the kids, but if you are ready and interested in having a real dialogue about real stuff and someone's real, unfiltered, candid journey, this is a great episode for you. 
before we get into the episode, if you have not joined our Facebook group, consider this your personal invitation. You can go to my website, justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast, backslash podcast group. You can opt in there. I will email you an invitation and you're in. And there's a lot of rich conversation that happens there. There's a great group of people. So be a fly on the wall or jump in and join. Either way, we would love to have you as a part of that group. Also, if you have not rated us on iTunes yet, do me a favor, rate us, leave a review, subscribe. All of this helps the work that we do here, and it really does help other people find this show. It's an easy way to support what we do here. All that being said, I cannot wait to introduce you to my new friend, Micah Murray. Today, I have Micah Murray with us. Micah, can you say hello? Hey. Hey. And I found out about you through Jen Hatmaker. She put up an Instagram post and tagged you in it. And I was like, who is this guy? And so I researched you, found your blog, and was just fascinated. So for those listening that may have not heard of you, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? Oh, man. Uh, that is a great question. So I am a writer and I am a dad. I'm a designer. I am a disillusioned ex-fundamentalist Christian. Uh, I still count myself as a Christian most days. And I love talking to people about uh, spirituality, especially folks who, like me, have had bad experiences in fundamentalism and evangelicalism, but are still hopeful that there's a God out there worth knowing. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And when I was fishing around on your website, I stumbled, I think it was on your About Me page, and you talked about growing up in a cult, which made me laugh, first of all, but because I kind of know where you're coming from with that. But secondly, that resonates such a sobering reality that a lot of people face. Um, and I know a lot of my listeners, they are in what I would call like a season of transition where they are, some are all the way out of church, some are in church, but a lot of them, like you just said, feel that disillusionment with the system they're in. So could you maybe give us a background of your upbringing inside of that faith group and what it looked like for you? Sure. So the cult that I am referring to is the Bill Gothard homeschooling thing, which is kind of famous for the Duggars and their TV show of 20-something kids and counting. Uh, So they are like poster children for that organization that I was in, and uh, our lifestyle would have been relatively similar to theirs, except there were only uh, eight of us kids, not 20 or whatever. Uh, but uh, the Bill Gothard organization was uh, basically a fundamentalist homeschooling cult that also 
was involved in a lot of other things and they had a lot of ideas about how the world should work according to the Bible. And it was mostly full of crap and pretty terrible. And then eventually as like a couple of years ago, the leader of the organization resigned after a ton of allegations came out that he was being uh, sexually harassing the teenage girls who he had bamboozled into working for him, mm-hmm. which is not a shock for anybody because that's usually what cult leaders wind up doing. Right. So uh, I did that from first grade until I was 20 and then spent my 20s kind of in evangelicalism, Bible college. I was into John Piper and Mark Driscoll and those kind of guys and oh, yeah. really in the evangelical scene. And then I became very disillusioned. Most of all, I became disillusioned with our theology. Are we allowed to cuss on this show? Oh my gosh, you're free to say whatever pops in your head, my friend. Okay, excellent. So uh, I became very disillusioned with the theology of the evangelical college that I was in during my my three years there. Kind of when I first got to to that school came from being a fundamentalist and thought, Oh wow, these evangelicals, like it's so free here. Like we can drink beer and we can listen to Lecrae. <laughs> and then within a couple of years, I realized that if the theology that we believed or that we claimed to believe was going to be logically consistent, there was nothing good or beautiful or loving about God And God was, in fact, like the biggest asshole the world has ever known. Mm. And so in my late 20s, I kind of found myself in a season of looking for a better way to be a Christian and wondering if it was possible to find a version of God who wasn't an asshole and a version of the gospel that was actually good news. Mm. And, you know, I'm listening to you talk and I'm feeling so many people listening right now just nodding their heads going, yes. I mean, we might not all have the exact same upbringing with the exact same church scenario, if you will, but we all can resonate with that. Like that is something that I think a lot of people right now, they're they're bothered by. They're starting to wake up going, wait a second. If I really believe all this and that means God isn't good and he's awful and I don't want any part of that. So now what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you mentioned in one of your recent blogs, this whole us versus them mindset. And can you divulge a little bit of how that played into how you viewed the world? Yeah. I mean, when I was, when I was in the world of fundamentalism and even in evangelicalism, I very much had a view that we, we were in and everybody else was out and, by we, I meant, you know, evangelicals. I thought I thought we were the real Christians and, you know, people with denominations or Catholics or people who didn't read the Bible every day weren't the real Christians. And, and we were the only ones who were really doing doing the thing that counted. And from that perspective, I believed that it was our job to save the world and um, but also was like very afraid of the world and thought that it was very threatening with its, you know, the ideas and the lifestyle of the world and just had a very narrow minded um, 
understanding of how the world works and what Christianity could look like and who could be Christians. So when I wound up, you know, in my late 20s, realizing that there were all these people who were followers of God who I had discounted for my whole life because they didn't follow God the way that I had been told we had to, it just blew my mind. I was like, whoa, the, the world is so much bigger and Christianity is so much more expansive than I ever dreamed was possible. Mm, that's so good. And so to someone listening right now, what you said sounds so wonderful, but sounds so terrifying to a lot of people because a lot of people are still afraid of the, of the unknown, of walking outside of the, the lines that have always been drawn for them. So how did you transition into that? Because it sounds like such an easy statement that you just said, but I imagine it was probably a longer process than just a, now I am going to jump out of this box. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was years. Like I was in college and realized that when I tried to share the gospel with people or whatever, when I tried to proselytize people to my evangelical point of view, because that's what I thought a good Christian should do. I, as I heard the words coming out of my mouth, I realized that they weren't compelling. Like it wasn't believable. Mm. I was like, if I was on the other side of this restaurant booth, hearing this pitch from me, I wouldn't buy what, what I'm selling. Like this is, it doesn't make sense. And with that realization, that was very scary because at that time I, I knew a lot of, of people in my peer group and, and people my age that had come from a background like mine who were abandoning any kind of religion whatsoever because of that reason. And I didn't want to be that like that, that really scared me because religion was in a way like all, like it had been the constant for my life. Mm. Uh, but I guess the moment where the bottom fell out for me was in my senior year of college when I was writing a paper for a, a class about Christian worldviews or about religious worldviews. And I was supposed to be writing about deism and I was supposed to like evaluate and then refute it because Christianity was clearly the only, the only right answer. And as I researched the claims of deism, which basically asserts that there is a God, but that the God isn't involved in, in the lives of humans and that God as presented by Christianity is, is a monster and isn't actually the deity that exists. I was like, these guys actually have a very solid point and it makes a lot of sense. And especially when I was in a culture where you hear pastors say things like, if you don't, believe in hell, then you don't really understand how much Jesus loves you. And they would say things like the fact that I was chosen to be saved and others weren't just makes my salvation that much more precious to me. And these are the kind of things that the the preachers that we looked up to would say, and it just felt so wrong. And I went to my pastor and I said, uh, help me make sense of this. And the only advice he had for me was, you need to repent of the sin of unbelief mm. and which is terrible advice, by the way, I don't endorse <laughs> that for anyone listening. Uh, but I tried that for, for about a year. I was like, well, I'm just gonna knuckle down and believe this shit, even though I don't really believe it. 
because what else can you do? And I like, I know how to go through the motions. I know how to read my Bible. I know how to pray and I'm going to do that. And I did. And it was like, okay. Like it started to feel okay again. Like I wasn't in constant existential crisis, but it still didn't, I still didn't feel like I really believed it. And then about a year into that, I stumbled across some heresy and that is what swung the door open for me mm-hmm. was uh, the idea. And for, if you know, for different people, it may be different things for me. The idea that, that really caught my attention was what if God actually saves everyone in the end? Mm. And, this was around the time of the whole kerfuffle with Rob Bell. And I was like, good Christians don't even think about this. Like this is off limits for us. We know that hell is the only thing that the Bible gives us the option to believe. And anybody who believes otherwise is just throwing out parts of the Bible that they don't like. But after I initially dismissed that idea, something about, about it stuck in my head. And I realized like, if God really is interested in saving all of humankind through the work of Jesus, that would resolve so many of my questions about how God could possibly be good. Mm. And as I followed that thread, it led me out of the safe confines of evangelical doctrine to where I am now. But it was not an easy journey like it wound up I wound up having to resign the job where I worked at ministry because it wasn't I wasn't compatible with the beliefs of that job anymore I moved across the country to be part of a church where I could believe these things and then the church kind of imploded three months later Mm. and so it was very painful um and not like a smooth transition and so I think if if you feel like you're in that same journey or if you feel like you're about to embark on that journey there is no easy path like having your entire worldview crumble and having your identity be reshaped is like an inherently painful thing and a very difficult thing but i i think it's such a beautiful thing and such a valuable thing and i would hate to to think about where I would be today if I had never like hit that fork in the road and taken the path of heresy. Mm. Oh my gosh. You said so many good things there. I, my brain is going a thousand miles a minute. The one thing that you said that stood out to me was how you, in order to go down this path, two things happened. You started letting go of everything that was familiar, your upbringing, your culture at the time, your church family, your job, I'm assuming family stuff was involved there too. And then you venture out kind of on your own, but yet it has this huge payoff of now this Jesus story that is so much more settling to your soul. And so I know the one complaint that I get from a lot of people in this position is that they are terrified of being alone. They're really afraid of leaving that community that they've always felt safe in that they've always felt at home in, or they're scared of their parents disowning them. I mean, there are very extreme responses to people who venture outside of 
their narrative if they've been inside of a tight evangelical faith community. So what, what words would you say to someone that's in that, in that spot? Man, that's just, it's so hard because it's true. Like it is a terribly lonely experience. And, and I feel very sad that that is the way it is, but that was very much my experience and has been the experience of a lot of other people I've known. I think more than any other thing, loneliness has been one of the things that's marked the past six years for me uh, through that transition. Mm. And that I hear from so many other people. And um, it's just hard. It's because like the church, the church in America, the evangelical church that, that I knew especially just doesn't have space for people who cross certain lines. And you see that when, you know, various high profile Christians, be they authors or musicians or whatever, you know, they take a a particular position and they say, I think that God is, is leading me to follow the spirit of God in this direction. And that person is just disowned Mm -hmm. and careers are ended instantly and, and just shunned and written off. And, that makes me so sad and so angry when I see the the church that I grew up thinking of as like this is the real church and and definitely one of them the church that is my cultural background and when you follow Jesus and when you really want when you want it all to be true like we always say like God is love and God's mercy is more than we could imagine. And the gospel is better news than you could ever comprehend. But when you actually embrace a doctrine that makes all those things true, all of a sudden you realize that you don't have any place to call home Mm. and it's terribly sad. Mm. I think that uh, where I found home for the first couple of years of that was in the internet. Uh, I was I was in rural Bible Belt in the south and and there was no church within driving distance where anybody was having these conversations that I knew of. And so I first found other people who were asking the same questions and talking about the same things as me through Twitter and through uh, the writings of people like Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie and and the whole world of of blogging. And, and since then I've, I've connected with so many other people at conferences and, um, just over the internet and in conversations that I've had and, and you meet these people and you recognize that there's quite a few of us that have had very similar experiences and it's lonely. Yeah. And I think that we need to be willing to like, if you're feeling that loneliness, I'm so sorry because I know it hurts like the worst. And it's so, it's so heartbreaking to feel like you can't share this experience with anyone else. And the thing that's given you life is also bringing so much death to everything you've known. But there is also hope for that because 
this is a conversation that people are having. And you may not be able to walk into a mega church like you would if you were evangelical and walk into a mega church and find people having these conversations. But in handfuls here and there, there are other people who are asking the same questions and who are coming to the same realizations and who are wanting the same things out of their spirituality. And so the, I think that there's hope too in the middle of that sadness. It's true. And I think, at least for me, I have found that although hard and although lonely, you start to find a new tribe and and it's not as big, but it's better, if that makes sense. You know, it feels like my tribe got smaller, but the conversations I'm having, I don't have to fake my way through. I can be totally raw and totally honest and there's no fear of rejection or fear of being excommunicated or put on a prayer list for God's sake. Like I'm free to have open thoughts and open dialogue. And I didn't have that before. So I think you're right. I think you do find your tribe, whether it be online or, you know, in a support group, even I know those are starting to kind of sprout up everywhere now, these wonderful support groups. So I'm curious because I know that you really jumped out of your box and it sounds like, did you move away? Is that what you did? I know you went to a new church, but did you actually physically move? Uh, yeah, I, I resigned my job in Arkansas and moved to North Carolina so that I could go to a, a church where other people were talking about the same kind of ideas and things. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how did your previous world respond to this big transition in your life? Well, I, I wrote a lot during that time. And I think I was a little bit more obnoxious than I probably had to be. So I think a lot of, a lot of people were just like, Oh, he went and became a liberal. Okay. Well, we know that happens to some people. And I'm still, I'm still friends with, with people from that world with some people. Um, there's some folks that I just know I can't, that I won't see eye to eye with on things. And, um, but for a lot of it, it's just, I just wound up realizing that that wasn't the world where I, I wasn't part of that world anymore and have just moved on and made other friends. So I read your recent blog, why I love Trump. And first of all, it was entertaining, hilarious and, and wonderful. It was wonderful. So Anyone listening, go check out this blog. But you talk about your previous culture and their feelings politically. Um, And you jump into this whole topic of loving your enemies and how that idea was presented to you back during those days and now how you've moved into a different mindset of what that could mean. Can you share a little bit of that? Yeah, so... You know, in my when I was in the churches that I was in in my early twenties, it was very conservative politically and theologically. Like all of that kind of went together, and right. nobody nobody would have outright said that Republicans is the party of Christians. But you know, that was kind of the working assumption: was Republican is good, Democrat is bad, conservative is good, liberal is bad. Right. You know, George Bush is good, everybody else, you know. John Kerry is bad or whatever. Like that was just the default assumption. And, 
and almost nobody in my peer groups and in my circles questioned that. Uh, so in that view, like the people that we thought of as our enemies was people like the gay agenda, uh, liberals, Muslims, you know, the kind of things that the leaders of evangelicalism told were like a threat to our religion. You know, we thought they, they said that Obama was going to like persecute Christians and stuff. And we were like, Oh no. (laughs) Uh, So it was really, it was really goofy. And now that I don't believe that it's so ludicrous that, 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 that was the, the story that they told us, because when you look at how, Christianity has played out in our country. Like we, the Christians have done so much violence and been the cause of so much injustice Mm. to those people, the people that we thought of as, as our enemies, Uh, you know, and we've, we've caused unmeasurable harm and heartbreak to the LGBT community. And we have been responsible for pushing policies that have, have hurt basically everyone who's not white. I mean, communities of color and immigrant communities and refugees, like we have not done a good job at not being dicks to these people, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my, my perspective when I was in that, in that world was like, oh, well, we need to love our enemies. So I guess I need to stop hating Obama. And I guess I need to stop hating gay people. And which is really I just am kind of embarrassed that that was even a thing I had to do, but that's where I was at. Um, (laughs) I I get it. But also it was really easy. Like as soon as I, my mindset switched, it was like really easy because Obama is actually kind of likable and gay people are fantastic for the most part. (laughs) And like, like it's, these people weren't our enemies. Like they weren't trying to harm us. Right. And, Right. And so to love those people wasn't actually like it wasn't as hard as we like to make it out to be when we were living in this imaginary world of persecution complex. Right. Right. But now here I am five or six years later on the other side of it. And now, you know, now my default assumption is that, you know, the Democrats are are good and Republicans are bad. Right. Um, Because. You can you can take you can take the boy out of fundamentalism, but it's harder to take fundamentalism out of the boy, you know. Oh, I and, I do. And uh, for twenty five years, I was taught to think in black and white, and good and bad, and you know us versus them. And so, it's it's easy to take that same thinking and apply it now to. Oh, now we're the good guys and they're, they're the bad guys. Mm. And the challenge for me is to understand that that way of thinking is still flawed, even though I think, I think it's a much more accurate understanding of the world to realize like how Christian culture causes violence against vulnerable people and how Christian culture is complicit in systemic oppression. Like these are absolutely true things that I think are very valid and that we need to be working towards ending. But what I have come to understand for myself or 
I say I've come to understand I'm trying to grasp, but I still struggle with this is like labeling whole groups of people as my enemies and writing them off isn't going to make any progress. Like, like the thing that I believe that I need to do if I'm going to consider myself a follower of Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is I need to pray for the people who I feel disgusted and angry at the way that, that they're perpetrating injustice and oppression. Right. Right. And still like, actively work to end that. Like we don't just sit back and pray and like, Oh, we're just going to feel good about this and, you know, happy feelings for everybody. Like, I think that there needs to be active resistance politically and communally and culturally, like against all this oppression and injustice that the church has been complicit in. But I think that there needs to also be an internal shift in myself where instead of looking at those people and be like, those awful people, how could they look at them and say, I was one of them Mm. and I changed. And the only way I changed was by access to new information and by people being empathetic with me and by me using my own God-given empathy to understand the plights of other people. And when you can engage that empathy and that human connection, that's where there's possibility to change, not by me going on Facebook and being like, F all you people because you're assholes because you like Donald Trump, right? <laughs> Which is what I want to do and what I do sometimes, but it's not effective. It's not like everybody's ever heard me be like, fuck Donald Trump. And they're like, oh, okay, you're right. I'm going to become a Democrat now. Right. Not like becoming a Democrat would be the solution either because Democrats aren't the solution. It's just like people are flawed power systems are flawed. And if we look to any group and be like, oh, well, now we need to not support Republicans and only support Democrats, like that will also eventually fail us too. Right. Well, it goes back to that whole idea of, and I think you even mentioned this in one of your blogs that I read, that there is the divine in everyone. There is that that God peace in all of us. And looking for that although it may be a challenge at times, um, it really does make the table more open, no matter what side you're on. When you realize, okay, we're all in this game together. All of us carry this divine peace inside of us. And can we start with something common? Um, one thing that you, that you said that I, I know some of my listeners may be scratching their heads on is this idea of Christian culture being oppressive. And I know you may laugh at this and I sometimes do too, but there are a lot of people, people who I love and I'm still connected with who that idea sounds so strange to them. They just cannot believe that their sweet little church could ever do anything oppressive. So can you help bridge that gap a little bit? Yeah. I think that this is not unique to our culture. I think every culture does a good job of telling their stories very selectively so that we appear to be the good guys 
and the other people appear to be the bad guys. And this is how tribal identities are formed, right? Right. So this is not unique to Christianity, but it is a sin that uh, Christianity, at least, and I, I, Christianity is very broad and there's many people around the world. When I say that in this conversation, I mean like American fundamentalism from 1980 to the present, because that's what I experienced. Right. Um, we, we've done so much. And I think that we have focused, we've picked a few issues and we've said, these are the sins and the sins that, that my churches chose to focus on was basically abortion and premarital sex. And that was it. Like, like those were the two, those were the issues. Like, don't do that. Those are the biggies. Yeah. And, uh, meanwhile, the church in America has been complicit in genocide and in slavery and in murder and in oppression. And if you look back through the history of America and look at how conservative biblical doctrine was used to justify the slave trade and look at how conservative biblical doctrine was used to justify the slaughter of indigenous nations and look at how conservative Christian doctrine was used to justify segregation. Mm -hmm. And we look at these things and and now it's easy to look back and be like, well, those people weren't real Christians. Like clearly no real Christian would ever twist the Bible to support slavery or no real Christian would ever say that it was God's will for us to slaughter men, women, and children of indigenous nations. But when you read the writings of the people who supported these positions, the way that they read and interpret the Bible is the same way that evangelicals do. It was the same language. It was the Bible clearly says. And as much as it pains us to do this, if we want to be faithful to God, we have to hold this position. And the same kind of language that the church in America uses now to discriminate against LGBT people and to discriminate against the Muslim community and to discriminate against um, refugee communities. Like it's all the same language. Mm. And we've washed that blood off our hands by just saying, Oh, if it was us now, we wouldn't do the same thing because it's so obvious in hindsight. But I do believe that we are doing the same thing and that it is going to be obvious in hindsight in a generation or two generations that they're going to look back and say, how did they think that that was an okay thing to do while still following the Bible? Right. Well, and you, you mentioned history, you know, we tend to forget that this history that you're talking about is less than 500 years ago. I mean, this, this history, you know, it is not far behind us at all. Yeah. It's, it's super recent. Like, I mean, there's this quote from, um, 
Bob Jones University, right? Which was uh, when I was in in high school. This was where all the kids that I went to school or that I went to church with wanted to go to college. Like it was very, very influential was Bob Jones University. And as recently as the 80s, they had a policy against um, against interracial dating. And this is this was their quote to support it. They said, based on the understanding of the Bible that forbade interracial dating and marriage among its students, in order to make that policy easier to enforce, the university did not admit blacks. We hold the doctrine that interracial marriage is contrary to principles set forth in God's word. Our right to be Bible-believing is the issue. This is religious freedom in a nutshell. Mm. 1983. Well, and you know, in the 90s, they were not allowing boys and girls to walk on the same side of the sidewalk either because of this fear of them having sex, I suppose. I don't know what the fear was, but they have definitely a track record of behavior like that. Yeah. And it's easy to look at them and say, well, they they are so fringe. They're so weird. But you look at this this sentence, we hold the doctrine that interracial marriage is contrary to the principles set forth in God's word. And you swap out interracial for gay marriage, and you have the dominant position of most evangelicals in America today. You do. And the same can be said of how women were treated, how women couldn't speak in church, how women couldn't lead. The same can be true of people who get divorced or commit adultery. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And one thing that continues to stand out to me, just like you said, is that it's the same argument. Over and over again. Yes. And I think I think you brilliantly threaded that all together for for honestly, a lot of people don't don't sit and think about things that happened two hundred years ago. And I can't blame them for that unless you enjoy history. <laughs> That's not right. gonna be something you're gonna do. But it's important to look behind us. Um, one of my favorite quotes says, The best way to predict the future is to look at the past and our past is telling us our narrative right now and it's happening. But a lot of people are starting to buck that narrative. Like we see in our nation every so often, this people group rises up and says, no, this is not okay. And so how would you, um, like if you could just look into, you know, a a magic glass and say that this is how I see America looking in a hundred years, what would your guess be? Hmm. Well, I don't know about America. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll figure our shit out and, um, you know, get our get ourselves pulled together. But also, uh, it seems that we're currently on a trajectory that a lot of powerful nations have followed. That's a rise and fall of of a civilization. And I don't. I just honestly don't know what America is going to be like in a hundred years. I will say though, for the church, I have great hope uh, for the next hundred years. I think that we are at a really exciting moment in, in the story of Christianity. And I think that a hundred years from now, if you, want to believe that God is not an asshole, that's not going to be a lonely experience. I think that a shift is happening. Uh, 
and people are are coming to understand a much more expansive view of Christianity. And there's there's always been people who have held and believed these things. It's not new, but like right. I, it's not been the dominant thing in like American Christianity. So a hundred years from now, I hope that and I believe that American Christianity is not going to be a religion led by white men. It's going to be, mm. um, it's going to be women and it's going to be queer people and it's going to be people of color. And it won't be like a token thing. Like, well, I got to make sure we have one black person at our conference. Like, I think that there is a shift happening and we're going to understand how much we have done damage to the body of Christ by excluding so many people who bear the image of God. And we are going to look to those people to show us what it means to be a person who is created in the image of the divine. And I think along with that, we are going to, I see a growing movement of repentance towards the, the ways that we've been complicit in injustice. And I think that we have a lot of work to do and we'll, we'll be doing ongoing work. But I think that a hundred years from now, hopefully the church in America, if America still exists, will be known as advocates for the oppressed and uh, as a place where queer people can be fully themselves. And as a place where, we actively work to undo the systemic evil of white supremacy mm. and a place where the Bible is not idolized uh, and to the harm of other people, but where we actually follow the spirit of God in a way that is alive and that gives life to the people who claim to be Christians. That almost brought me to tears. That's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I imagine a lot of people hearing that want that. They want to be free enough to to imagine a God spirit movement that looks something like that, where their neighbors feel welcome and they don't feel oppressed or pushed out or, or excluded. But a lot of people are really afraid of, of that idea because they're afraid that they are letting go of the inerrancy of the word of God, they're afraid that they are, you know, signing themselves up for eternal damnation for even thinking along those lines. Um, and so I, I imagine a lot of people listening may find themselves in that space of wanting what you're saying, wanting to believe that that's true, but are stuck in fear. How would you respond to people like that? Well, first of all, I would say, Thank you for sticking with a heretic as long as you have to make it this far in the conversation, because <laughs> if, if that's where you're at, um, I know that a lot of the things I've said have probably been really challenging and I probably sound like an asshole. Um, <laughs> but I would say this fear is a really natural response. And when we're talking about these ideas, we're not just talking about religion or politics or culture. We're talking about our identities and no matter who you are or where you live or what you believe, 
it's really hard to have your identity challenged and to have your identity threatened and and everything inside of your consciousness and and the way your mind operates is designed to like protect that self-identity and to reject any idea that would cause a crack in your foundation of who you know yourself to be and if you were raised christian in the same way that i was believing that the Bible is the inherent word of God and the one thing that you can know to be true in a world of otherwise shifting and unstable foundations, like that is, that's your identity. And that's what we were told was the identity. So it's scary. Like that is a real thing. And it was scary for me for a long time. And I think anybody who has stepped outside the comfort zone of doctrinal purity has experienced that same fear of like, is God going to smite me? And is it okay to be believing this? And have I wandered from the fold of God? I think that, I think that we need to start believing in a God who is as good as our our songs claim that God is. Mm. Like, think about all the shit we say about God all the time, about how God is so wise, and God is so patient, and God is so merciful, and God is so loving, and God is everywhere, and God cares deeply about every person. Like, these are all the things that we say. And if we really believe them, then I don't think we have to let fear hold us back from exploring the world of ideas and exploring the world that God has given us because wherever we go, there God is. And if we, if we are really looking for God, I don't think that I don't think that we can get lost, you know? Yeah. And you know, one thing too, that comes to mind that when I, my brief, my brief stint as a pastor, I was really amazed at how many people don't think that they can hear God for themselves. And they really, really believe that whatever is being told to them is literally the word of God. And it was amazing to me to see the, the freedom that people experienced when they were just still and allowed themselves to connect and hear God for themselves. Yeah. I will say this and I'm just some liberal asshole. So you take my opinion with a grain of salt. But when I believed in that we were going to hell and every, you, we were going to heaven and everybody else was going to hell. Right. I was always afraid that I wasn't on the heaven list. And I was constantly worried about it. And I'm not afraid of that at all anymore. Like that never, never is something that I'm afraid of. So ironically, by by like stepping off of the path that was guaranteed to to bring me salvation, according to like pray this prayer and then you can know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven when you died – I never knew that I was going to heaven when I died. And now I'm not, I'm just not afraid of hell anymore. 
uh, mm-hmm. because I don't believe that a God who is as good as we say that God is would let somebody slip through the cracks and accidentally wind up in hell when that person really wants to be with God. Right. Um, I will say that when I was in that world, I was constantly afraid that I wasn't good enough. I go back and I read my journals and it's just full of prayers of, dear God, I feel like I'm a bad Christian. I've let you down. I've disappointed you. I only read my Bible three times this week instead of every day. You know, I'm not praying enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. And when I believed that praying and reading my Bible at a set time every day was the mark of a good Christian, I could never be good enough to believe that God loved me. Mm. And when I stopped believing that Christianity is about how hard you can read your Bible, and when I embraced the idea that you can have a relationship with God without reading the Bible at all, like that, I'm free of that fear. And I know some people have really meaningful experiences reading the Bible. I still have like tons of passages that I've memorized that are very meaningful to me. But if you look throughout history, like the Bible is a recent invention, right? Mm-hmm. And there were people all throughout history who had experiences with the divine because they wanted to and their hearts were open towards God and God interacted with them. And then in the community of faith, which I think is so important, you know, this is why I haven't given up on the idea of church as much as I have issues with the institutional church in America is because there's something about being in the presence of other people who bear the image of God that reveals God to us. And that's a way that we interact with the divine as well. And there's just, there's so many ways to experience God that we really, really don't have to limit ourselves to a tiny little list of doctrinally approved things, you know? Well, as I tell my children, that's really all the Bible is, is a story of people doing just that. It's it's really just a storyline, a narrative, if you will, of one person after another having these crazy divine encounters and then seeing what happens next. That's really the narrative of the Bible. And then of course, Jesus pops on the scene and messes the whole thing up. But I, I view the Bible that way as it's really pointing us to doing what you're saying. It's pointing us not towards a book, but it's pointing us to a connection and experience a real living, breathing thing. And for some reason that's gotten lost and, it, and it's sad to me because that's, that's kind of the whole point. Yeah. And if you, if you do believe that the Bible is true, then you have to take seriously the ideas that are presented in the first chapter of John, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us Yes, and we beheld his glory. And whereas the, the, the word of God until that point had been, stories and written documents and uh, scrolls. Like now we have a person who is the word of God, right? Right. In times past, God revealed himself through prophets and priests, but now in these last days has revealed himself through his son, Jesus. Right. And so we look at Jesus and we're like, here is a person who encapsulates 
everything that the authors of scripture to that point were just trying to get at and not doing a very good job of. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but we haven't been content with the word of God being a person. We still want the word of God to be a book because if the word of God is a book, then you can control it. You can sell it. You can regulate who has their hands on it. You can tell people what it means. Like if Jesus is the word of God, you can't control that. Like it's a real person and he may have like zapped up to heaven or whatever, but we believe the spirit of Jesus is still among us in, in like the miracle of the divine. Right. And so when people say the Bible is the word of God, it just seems to me like they're scared maybe of letting Jesus be the word of God, because if Jesus is the word of God, things might get out of hand. <laughs> and become very unpredictable very quickly where your enemies all of a sudden become your friends and you start eating dinner with them and hanging out with them and defending them. Everything gets messed up. And, and there's so much freedom in that too, though. Like you can never, this was one of my main complaints with Christianity all through my teens and and my early twenties is they were like, the Bible is the greatest love letter ever written. And God is supposed to be the most satisfying relationship you've ever had. And if you feel lonely, it's because you're not spending enough time with Jesus. And no matter how much I read the Bible, I was like, it's still just a freaking book. You know, I don't want to have a relationship with a book. I want a relationship with, with something that's real. Yeah. And, and not to say that you can't have a relationship with God through the Bible, like I absolutely think that's a way through which we interact with the divine, but the relationship is not with the book, right? And there's so much more freedom when you're able to lift your eyes from the book and look past it to the thing that the book is talking about. Like, like Jesus said, you search the scriptures thinking in them you will find life, but what you don't realize is that they testify to me. And that's exactly the same thing we do now is we get so lost in reading the Bible and arguing about the Bible and defending the Bible that we miss the whole point of what it's talking about, which is God became a person and changed the world. Right. Oh, it's so good. Oh my gosh, I could continue this conversation for hours. This is such great stuff. Micah, tell people how they can find you. I I blog on the internet at micajmurray.com. And I am also on Twitter as Micah J. Murray and Facebook as Micah J. Murray. So any of those places, you can find me and come say hi. Yay. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And I just have to take a moment to just tell you how much I appreciate the work that you're doing. It is a brave journey that you have been on and to be as vulnerable and open and transparent as you have been in your blog and your writing and just in your life in general. Overall, it's inspiring and it's moving and it's shaking and it's doing a lot of work. And I just want to tell you that I think you're brave and I'm impressed by that and I'm encouraged by that. And you've given some bravery into me. So thank you for being you and doing what you're doing. 
Thank you. That's so kind. I'm really glad we were able to have this conversation. Yes, it was so good. We'll have to have you back. Micah, thank you. Thank you. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.